Welcome to Partnering Leadership, a top global leadership podcast for purpose-driven leaders with a growth mindset seeking to learn from the leadership journey of change makers and business insights from leading global thinkers. Tuesday conversations with CEOs from the greater Washington, D.C. region and Thursday conversations with best-selling leadership book authors and business thinkers. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tabakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm really excited this week to be welcoming Rebecca Linder. Rebecca is the founder and CEO of Linder Global Events, which is an agency that designs and produces events for Fortune 100 companies and leading nonprofits. I really enjoy this conversation with Rebecca because I have seen her purpose-driven leadership, both of her organization and in the community. I'm sure you will enjoy it and learn a lot from her too. I also enjoy hearing from you. Keep your comments coming. Mahanatmahantavikoli.com. There is also a microphone icon on partneringleadership.com. You can leave voice messages for me there. Now, here's my conversation with Rebecca Linder. Rebecca Linder, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. Mahan, thank you for having me. It's a privilege and honor. Such an exciting time for us to be talking to you. Having led through what has been one of the most disruptive experiences in all of our lives, but most especially your industry, Rebecca, but would love to start out first with your upbringing. Whereabouts did you grow up and how did that upbringing impact the kind of person you've become? It's a great question. So I am the product of an American father and a Jamaican mother who was born and raised in Jamaica. And my father was a foreign service officer and met her there, at which point they moved around a bit. I'm the youngest of three. And I was born in West Africa and then went on to Brussels and to the Middle East in Jordan and then came to the U.S. for the first time when I was about seven and then left again for Greece where I went to high school. And then they went off to Madrid when I came back here to Cod. So it's I'm this amalgamation of cultures and religions and countries in the most beautiful way, actually. And my parents did a tremendous job of making sure we really took advantage of those opportunities and a real immersion into those cultures. What a wonderful opportunity to see and live in those different cultures, Rebecca. How did that shape you when you experienced these different cultures, different countries, different foods, different people? while growing up? I think it shaped me in several ways. I think the first of which it is created a very open-minded person over here because I was always other in all these countries, including my own here in the U.S., because my experiences were so different. It really created this level of tolerance and understanding that has been very useful for me and has helped me bridge really difficult conversations and created a tremendous amount of curiosity for meeting people and understanding their perspectives and not limiting them to what they say, but understanding where they're coming from. Because I'm also highly tolerant of different perspectives because they're so varied in how they're influenced. And then, of course, it taught me courage, right? Because I was dropped in into all these little places <laughs> and having to send my way without the right language, culture, look, feel. So it taught me about my own sort of sense of who I am and how I wanted to show up. So you gained an appreciation for all cultures, 
but did one of them resonate with you or stay with you more than the others? That's interesting. I have two experiences. One, the Mediterranean culture, I think, is so familiar to me because my mother is a very hot-blooded Jamaican and the Mediterranean culture has that both that casual Yaman sit back as well as that really intense familial cultural piece that I actually really love and enjoy. So that was very resonant for me. I think actually my biggest challenge was always coming back to the U.S., which is always fascinating. So the two inflection points were when I was seven, which is really tough. And it was the first time I'd come to the country, even though it's my country of origin. And then again at 18, when I came back for college, those were my biggest transition, which was really interesting because that was not the expectation. How were you able to adjust, especially at 18 when you came to college and you went to Boston University? I think both at 7 and 18, I did the same thing. And there's a version of it in these other places as well. But when I got here, I realized very quickly that somehow, even though I was really from the U.S., there was an exotic component to me that was not actually particularly attractive. It was interesting, but it wasn't relatable because so many people that I was around were from where they were from. So I found myself dimming my light a little bit around that aspect of me and trying to be a bit of more of a chameleon in terms of what was comfortable for people, but quickly realized that a quick immersion into these places was the way to do it. And I'm a highly social introvert, even though I come off as an extrovert. So it takes a lot out of my tank to just jump in, but I've done it every time. I got involved in clubs and sports and ran for office, those kinds of things, whenever I started as a way to say, hey, here I am. I think it makes the question, where are you from? Something you have to take a step back and makes it a lot more complex than the typical intention of the question. Correct. I have that all the time. It was also an opportunity, though, to reinvent yourself every time, too, which was really great because you could peel off the layers that didn't appeal and reestablish yourself as this new version, too, every time you moved. So there was a big advantage in it as well. Adrian, what is one way you did that, Rebecca, reinvented yourself? When I've done it from a month, nickname to getting back to my actual full name, Rebecca, that was a big one when I transferred from Greece to the U.S. I think sides of my personality that people were getting accustomed to and I wanted to be taken a little bit more seriously. So as maybe change, I could divest myself of some aspects of who I was perceived as to who I wanted to be. So there was a tremendous opportunity there for me as well. So why did you decide to study political science? Probably because I didn't know any better, actually. I was a poli-sci <laughs> econ major with an acting minor. My family is very political in terms of both opinion and interest. I think I actually just wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Probably midway through, I would have done something more like English lit or something a little bit more artful, because that's really where my passion lies. African-American uh, history would have been a great interest of mine. Art is a great interest of mine. But I was able to channel a lot of that because I was too lazy to extend my college for another year to switch major. So I ended up focusing on the acting as a way to draw out the more creative side of me. You say you were lazy to extend it for a year. Many would say you were smart not to yeah. take on another year of debt to Correct. go through a fifth year of college. So a little bit of both. So there's some laziness there as well. While in college, you wanted to become an actor. What got you to want to become an actor? I had never done any acting. I had always been thrilled by poetry and plays and read a lot, but I never 
you know, put myself on stage. I had put myself in other positions of class president and these kinds of visible components, but I ended up seeing uh, a play being advertised, an Edward Albee play, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this in college, and I'm one to get myself out of my comfort zone a little bit, so I thought, oh, this will be interesting. While I threw up before I got on stage every time, I (laughs) absolutely loved both the intensity and the pressure of it, and also just the idea that it was such an easy way to draw out emotions that I typically wouldn't deal with myself. But because you had to immerse yourself in the character, you were able to draw them out in a way that I actually really enjoyed. And it was probably the first time I started to navigate who I was really internally in an interesting way. What an interesting perspective, Rebecca. You had the opportunity to tap into your authentic emotions more so on stage, playing others, than you had the opportunity to do so in real life. I think to some degree, I still have to, and I do a lot of thematic work now, which was so not a part of my universe back then. And I think I was so, I'm such a doer and I'm very task-oriented and goal-oriented. And I didn't know the language or the narrative around how to do that. It just wasn't part of, I'm 52, so it wasn't really part of our culture at the time, both in my household as well as the culture we all grew up in, those in the sage group. And the notion of, oh God, okay, I have sadness in here. I have fear in here. I have joy and creative energy and all of these big emotions. Who knew? Quite the journey. Then what brought you to D.C.? So a couple of things, actually. I had a bit of a cancer scare. After college, I went out to Seattle for the summer and I worked out there. I had a million jobs because I do that always. I had been accepted into a graduate program for acting and I decided to extend it a year, defer it and just spend a year out there. And so I did and I made all this money because I had a million jobs and I was having a great time. Then I decided I was going to defer one more year because I wanted to go travel the world. Prior to that, I had gotten some physicals and I'd had a cancer scare in college. I'd had a lump in it for my bus in college. And then I ended up having another scare, a vaginal this time, but another scare. So I was gone for three months and then had to come back to D.C. and I had to receive treatment every three months for a bit of time. So I just was like, okay, what am I going to do now? And I decided not to pursue the acting. I took a job at Arena Stage, tried to immerse myself in the world, and I realized very quickly the acting side of it wasn't really where my love was. That was just a great introduction for me emotionally, and I enjoyed a bit of it. But not the core of what I loved was the ready or not, here they come at six o'clock, curtain goes up and you better figure out what's going on. And that piece I really did love. So I ended up not pursuing the acting as a career and got into production. You started your business at 26, Rebecca. What got you to decide that you wanted to take this big step? There's so many good reasons. Ignorance is a big one, though. Let's just be super clear and honest about I didn't know any better. Interestingly enough, some of the motivation around it for me, and I am this person to this day, is I was always very entrepreneurial as a kid. I'm not a Wharton grad. I'm really more of a hustler than I am this established and business kind of guru. While I've done quite well, it's really been on my own theme. And while I was always very entrepreneurial, what I also although this is counterintuitive, I'm also require a fair amount of freedom and independence. And, and while I'm a slave to all my clients and have to do all the things that they need us to do, I also find myself craving that ability and that maneuverability. And 
The opportunity presented itself very quickly. I was the director of operations for a big catering company in town, which was a position that they actually created for me. I started at 23, and then by that time, I was handling some of the biggest clients in town, like the Smithsonian National Gallery of Art, and really realized that while food is one of my first loves, it was a very limited kind of sliver of the bigger picture. And I was like, I really like that bigger picture. I love the creativity around it. So I just said, I'm going to do this. And I took a big lease. And I also didn't like having to just be in an office to be in an office just to show if I need to work 48 hours in a row, I will do that. But if there's only 10 hours of things to do, I'm only going to do 10 hours. So just philosophically, that momentum already existed in me. You already had some of the relationships to establish the business. On the other hand, as a 26-year-old wanting to get large contracts to do event management must not have been very easy. Very challenging. I had great resources in terms of vendor relationships and partnerships. And I had some external on the client side that continued to work with me, which was very generous of them, which is why I give so much back to young people now, because I was helped in that capacity and people took a risk. But yeah, one, I looked very young. Well, I sounded quite pulled together. And the minute they saw me and they'd have that million dollar check in their hand, they would literally not let go of it. When they were giving it to me, they're like, you look like you're 10. And I was like, I'm not, I swear to God. And people had to vouch for me and say, no, this is a person who you can rely on and depend on. But it was really intimidating also because I'm not one who grew up asking for a lot of help. And it took me quite some time, which is the biggest lesson I've learned over time, that I was just trying to do everything myself. So it was hard in the beginning and really devastating to your ego. Please let the phone ring kind of thing. (laughs) But you were able to start the business, succeed with it. And at the same time, on the personal side, Rebecca, that's when after a few years, you also had to come to grips with your sexuality and declaring your sexuality. What was that like for you? Yeah, so that was a very big deal. And again, it taps back into the earlier conversation around I wasn't very in tune with who I was internally. I had lots of boyfriends. And in fact, I was married. I got married when I was 29. And I got to about 34 and we were considering having children. And it felt like a very big decision. You know, I knew I wanted kids. And I used that time as a time to really reflect and introspective around, actually, is this a thing or not? And realizing through that process that my sexual identity was truly different than how I was presenting. I was gay and realized that was an injustice to my husband. And I shared that with him. And as that resolved our marriage, we're still good friends, which I'm so grateful for. But it was a big deal. And it wasn't just, you know, him. It was my family. It was my whole universe. I operated as a heterosexual all my life. There was an external piece to it as well as an internal piece to it. And it was really difficult. So how did that external world, at least the external world part that you cared about, which is your family and your loved ones, how did they take it? For the most part, really well. And it's a testament to who they are. And it's also probably a testament to why I waited so long. I think I knew in my heart of hearts at that point in my life, I had everything that I needed just in case it wasn't going to work out. I had a very supportive friend group. I had a very, for the most part, supportive family. I was established in my business. And so I felt secure in my own right in order to be able to deliver this very big message. Even my clients 
to some degree. It's not that I wear it on my sleeve all day long, but it became known. And some people did have a challenge with it and some people didn't. And that was okay. That goes back also to my upbringing and that level of tolerance I have. It's okay for people not to agree or be okay with the choices I'm making in my life. I don't want to be hindered how I get to act in my life, but I'm okay to have people not necessarily agree or even support it. It's becoming comfortable with yourself and in your own skin and the people that love you will choose to love you the way you are. Correct. If some don't choose to accept you, that's fine. (laughs) But what's most important is for you to present as you truly are. Correct. And it's taken me a long time, you know, and I would even say you fast forward a little bit into my 40s, I think, and now I have a partner at this point and We're thinking about having our own children and we started at 39 and I was 42 when the second one came. And truthfully, that was a huge turning point for me in having to identify how would I articulate my values now, not only just as a human. And that was probably the moment where the most transformation in my life took place. And not less when I came out as gay, but more around what are actually my values that I'm going to articulate to my children? That really put me on a path that even at 52 now, I'm still on, but a really intense self-reflection and self-improvement and self-development. It's difficult for all of us, Rebecca, to do that. But what you mentioned is that self-reflection is what's important as a first step. Different people have to do it in their own way. But it's a hard process to go through when you think about passing on what you believe to be the right values to your kids. Very much. And for me, it isn't even the right values. It was just what are my values so that I could articulate to my children to give them opportunity and curiosity around what they might want as their own. But that reflection and introspection, it's hard because it also brings up that shadowy side of you that you don't like to deal with and you put over here. And it also made me realize that I had to find new meaning even in my businesses and in my relationships. Like I had to redefine how I connected to things that were important to me in order to continue feeling passionate and enthusiastic about it. So as you were going through this process, you also mentioned meeting up with your partner. You wanted to have children and you decided on having children. You have to. How did that process work for you with your partner? So that was very interesting. So at the time my partner and I were together, gay marriage was not an option, but we knew we wanted to have children. She was a little older than I was. So at the time, Shady Grove insisted that she would use a donor egg. So I turned out to be the donor egg for her and the anonymous sperm donor. Then I used my own eggs. We went through an in vitro process twice and with the same sperm donor. So the children are uh, biologically 100%. But what was interesting about this scenario is I had to adopt my son that my partner had, and then she had to adopt our daughter, even though, you know, we were 100% the parents. And At the time, which was really interesting, we went through the full adoption process twice. So the home interviews and the home inspections and deep into our finances and our friend network and family background. And as this was happening, there was this big story in the foster care system where this woman had killed these two foster kids and put them in her freezer. And I'm sitting here going, how come she's not getting a home inspection? What's happening on this end? And then it got down right down to the wire. I remember this with my son, who's the oldest. We were 
going into the courtroom and our lawyer at the time said, listen, the judge that's been assigned to us isn't particularly friendly toward gay people. And therefore, I looked at her. I was like, you need to tell me you've gone through all of this. And there's like a threat of this not being like signed and okayed. And she was like, there's always that. And it really instantly taught me a lesson about how vulnerable we are to these external factors. And we're seeing, of course, that today in so many ways. But it really taught me a lesson. And of course, I was so angry. But thankfully, they signed the paperwork and I behaved in the courtroom. But that was a really vulnerable moment. I'm happy to hear that it all worked out. But just to put it in context, Rebecca, this is about a dozen years ago. So we're not mm-hmm. talking about decades back. Yeah, no, only 12 years. And at the same time, it was also interesting. We had to get special dispensation. For instance, when my partner had my son, I had to get special dispensation to stay at the hospital because technically it can only be related family. And because I wasn't officially married or in any capacity, even though these were my children and my life, I wasn't even able to stay in the hospital. Thankfully, they're very progressive in their thinking, but it really made you aware, wow. And that wasn't that long ago. But that's also why I think, Rebecca, it's important for stories like yours to be told, because it's easy for us to very quickly forget how far we have come and how hard we have to work to maintain that progress. As you mentioned, we can very easily revert back if we don't appreciate the steps that have been taken, the sacrifices that have been made to bring us to the point that we are at this point. So you're fortunate to have had this strong relationship, have your kids. You've also done some magnificent things with respect to the events that you have coordinated, including couple that are landmarks and historical in the greater Washington, D.C. region. And I take a lot of pride in, let alone I imagine you take tremendous pride in. One of them was the grand opening of the Smithsonian's African-American History and Cultural Museum. What was that experience like for you? For me, that was such an interesting journey. I was, first of all, so privileged and honored to have been selected. And we were selected three years in advance of the opening to consult on sort of the vision around it and then hired to then implement the series of events and working a lot alongside Lonnie Bunch and his team was truly just transformative for me as a person, but also as a company. And my own history, if you go down into the museum, you'll see it. It starts in the kingdom of Benin, which is where I was actually born. It was Dahomey at the time, but it was Benin where I was born. And then it goes to the Afro-Caribbean, which of course is part of my culture as well. So for me, it was a personal journey as well as sort of a highlight of my career to be able to support something that I felt so strongly about and to work with such thoughtful and introspective and smart and brilliant people bringing this museum to life. It was really a really emotional experience for me, as well as just a a moment of great pride. And it is a source of pride for the entire country. I often bike by the museum, the lines of people going in and coming out and getting a better appreciation of that history. You also had a role. I saw it in person and there are beautiful pictures for people that want to look up in celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Apollo program with 
projections on the Washington Monument, which was magnificent. What was that experience like, and how did you come up with all the plans and designs around that? It was a Herculean effort by many people and was spearheaded by the Air and Space Museum. And we came on as a logistics partner. It was also an incredible experience. What's interesting about all of these events that we do that are so meaningful to me is often tied to the fact is that these moments bring together people of disparate cultures, religions, political affiliations, race, creed, and otherwise, and can feel pride around accomplishment and achievement and around something that they can agree on. To me, that is where transformation lies. And really what we do from a convening perspective is we try to align ourselves with moments that are really going to make people come out on the other side better and broader. That's what I take most pride in. And that's what both of those events represented for me. It's just magnificent what was done in that celebration. So you have this business thriving on the family side, have the kids, things are going really well, <laughs> which is great. However, two years ago, we get hit with COVID, which has impacted everyone's life in one way, shape, form, or another. At the same time, your business is all about convening people, bringing them together. And the first thing with the lockdown was people shouldn't be together. Tell me first about those initial days, Rebecca, and then how you started trying to handle what was a new experience for all of us. You know, what's interesting about this, so really March 13th, everything's closed down. And on March 14th, I was turning 50. So these two things came together for me in a very interesting way. We were keeping our eye, obviously, really as of December, January, we started to feel what was happening. And by February, I was like, this is going to be a big problem. Then March 13th came and really that was it. My kids were out of school at that point. Businesses were shutting, events were closing up and we had big events. It was actually slated to be our biggest and most successful spring ever, as well as the biggest and best year ever in the company. And one by one, as things started to either be pushed initially because people thought, oh, this will only be for two weeks. And I suspected that was not the case. By April 1st, I started to make some decisions around, I was almost 34 people in the company, and we ended up by that September being down to just 11, which was actually one of the bigger stats from an event company perspective nationwide, because I was a part of this big cohort of people who were talking weekly to figure out what was happening, as well as locally. It was very difficult. And I, in addition to having to make difficult decisions, I also had to make sure my team felt supported and stable in my vision and our clients as well, that we could navigate this for them successfully. And it took a tremendous amount of time and lift to do that and to help them get knowledgeable about what their opportunities were. Thankfully, we had that virtual experience already, but there were so many platforms and different ways of dealing with technology that was coming to the forefront. I had a team just solely dedicated to just keeping up with the technology. And confirming to the client that we were solid as an organization, we were viable as a company, and they could trust us to continue on. What is interesting about COVID, as difficult as it was, it actually drew on what I do best. It was drew on my, not just my expertise, but really on my genius in a way that 
was really surprising and also great for me because I was getting to a point before COVID hit, I felt a little rudderless as the CEO of this company. Like, where does it want to go? What does it want to do? And COVID really gave me the opportunity to reinvent the organization. And I had just brought on in 2019 a new COO who also what was great about COVID for us is that it really defined our two roles and highlighted where our strengths were. So she really took over at that point on the day-to-day and I took on more of the vision and where are we going. So while very difficult and 2020 was a real bust from a business perspective and revenues and all of that, we were able in 2021 to do actually quite well and build back and not to what we were, but really I shouldn't say build forward to who we want to be aspirationally. And it's a very different company. And now we're over 20. I wonder, Rebecca, as you look at events moving forward, now that to a certain extent people are more comfortable congregating, would love to know your thoughts and perspectives with respect to, you said, not only your organization is better off to a certain extent as a result of what you experienced, but you are doing things differently as a result of what we've experienced over the past couple of years. What are you doing differently and how do you see the event space and the gatherings changing as a result of what we experienced? I actually think COVID has had a positive impact on how people will convene in the future and has required us to take what I consider to be a stagnant model prior to COVID into a much more thoughtful model going forward. And we do have a consultative side to the business that was very active during COVID, working with our clients across their event portfolios to really think about strategically what made sense coming out of COVID. And the reality is, and you're seeing this just in the workforce, right? People don't want to go back full-time to their offices. They don't want to travel once a month to events and conferences or stakeholder meetings. There's a new version of how people want to engage. And I think they're more discriminant and have a higher expectation of what the value proposition is going to be for them. As a result, I think it makes it really interesting. So I think three things are happening. One is I think gone from experiential economy, whether people know it or not in terms of events, to people want transformation. They want to go to something and come out transformed in some way. And I think it's our obligation to provide that. Number one, I think number two, the expectation around the experience itself is also raised. I think, again, if people are going to be away from their family, friends, and otherwise to take the time to travel, you know, the expectation of how they participate is also different. So transformation is one thing, but they also want to be part of the conversation. This is no longer about people from the stage speaking. This is about facilitation. How do you draw out the experts in the room? How do you get genius from your audience and not as participants, not as sitting around listening to a bunch of people? So I think that's the other piece of it. And I think thirdly, providing just an opportunity for a meaningful connection to their peer network in a way that I think we forgot. That is the challenge a lot of organizations have in their return to office. And a lot of events have now that we are in this post-initial phases of COVID era, whatever you want to call it. I've attended events where to them, it's almost like nothing happened over the past two years. Still, the panelists sit on the stage 
And I'm asking myself, wait a minute, I drove 45 minutes to sit here to watch something on stage that I could have just as easily clicked my Zoom meeting. Not that I would have watched it anymore on Zoom anyway. <laughs> but no, true. It, but that is in the back of my mind. So you mentioned people want to move from experiential to transformation. I want to understand that a little bit better. I want to touch on each and every one of the items you mentioned, because I think there is so much wisdom in there, both for gathering people, whether it is for events as a convening company or just bringing people back to the office with purpose. Yes, there are some bosses and some organizations that will say, you gotta come back five days a week or three days a week and that's the way it's gonna be. However, the most insightful won't be approaching it that way. So you said the need to move from experiential to transformational. That makes sense, but oh my God, that's really hard to do, Rebecca. Hard. It is hard. And remember, there's a client on the other end of this. So they all, they, their threshold and tolerance is very different than mine. My perspective and what I challenge my team to do is, listen, everyone came out of COVID transformed, whether they know it or not, with a new perspective on how they want to lead their lives, which impacts the workforce and impacts how we go to work and how we participate. And with that comes events and office spaces and all of these things. And the reality is people want to convene in a very different way and they need it to be. It's not even they want it. They need it to be whether they know it or not. If they're going to engage that way, they want to go to an office that's going to support them, both personally and professionally. That barrier of this is why I'm at the office versus after seeing your dog and his kids and all of this in the back of your Zoom screen. I remember one of my kids came in one day. I'm on the big important thing, dropped the F-bomb. And I'm like, really? And now I look like a terrible person. But you realize very quickly, it took the barriers down. We're dressing more casually or more in our personal styles. People want to be supported. People want to be changed. People want to be aligned with organizations, events, friends, networks, cohorts that are going to move them, not just inform them. They want to be moved and feel like they're contributing to something bigger than themselves. Again, I'm not sure that everyone is conscious of that, but I do really believe that is the vibe that we're feeling and seeing and the energy that is out there. And I feel so strongly about that personally. And it's always been a mantra for the company. In fact, it's our tagline. We transfer lives through the power of events. And I really believe that and connect to that. And that is why I get up every day and do what we do. That's why you bring a lot of value to your clients, Rebecca, but this requires both a different mindset yeah. and a different skill set. So first and foremost, it requires for people to approach gatherings, approach convenings differently, a very different mindset, and then a recognition that it requires a different skill set to make this work. You also mentioned facilitation rather than the people on stage. That's a very different skill set than what most of the people that have convened in the past are comfortable with. So it requires different mindset and different skill set to be able to transition events and convenings into this future that you're talking about. And I've had to do a lot of work around that, not only reading, I just finished the executive coaching program at Georgetown, and I'm looking at the facilitation program. We work with a lot of facilitators and bring in a lot of experts around this. 
For me, I'm not trying to become the facilitator as much as just trying to understand the language around it in order to help our clients. Because you're right, it's scary. We're still doing events that are what they used to be. While I can say it till I'm blue in the face, people have to experience little moments in order to get really comfortable diverting their current budget to this new format. And it requires more work to prepare the clients, all the stakeholders to understand how this is going to work. And you have to re-educate your participants as well as to how they're going to engage in the process. It is a very big consultative piece of what we do. And I've had to bring on people with that expertise in the company, as well as challenge my events team to expand their universe, both through readings, through courses, through exposure, to thinking about not just the logistics and the creatives and the sort of the technology around this. It's both context and content, right? There's the context is equally as important. What does that container look like in order to really facilitate? And that's everything from temperature and sound to setup to how we draw people out. What an outstanding opportunity, though, to reflect on their convening and how they would do things differently. And that's part of what you do in working with clients as you help them plan their convenings. I think part of the challenge will be that people need to let go of the way things worked in the past. And at least in my interactions, Rebecca, with some of the senior leaders that I guide and coach, many of them have a very hard time. So their people get it a lot more. Their people are the ones that want to go into an environment and want to be engaged, want facilitation, want that transformation. But the leaders still want the scripts <laughs> to be the way it was a couple of years ago. And part of what I have to push them on is exactly what you said, that is no longer acceptable. They can shove that food down people's throats just for so long before losing the engagement, if not fully losing their team members. And you're seeing that now outside of convening. Just look at people who are forcing their teams to come back to work, right? People are quitting. People don't want to be a part of that. Those are toxic cultures now. Those aren't cultures with progressive leadership anymore. And it's a problem. So I think the momentum is such that there's people who are in that change maker space that are really pushing on it, but there's enough momentum just at all levels that is going to just force it. And it'll impact people's ROI at the end of the day, which is always a motivator to make change. But I think there's other things afoot that will help. So on the business side, Rebecca, if we speak with each other five, 10 years down the line and you believe that you've been able to take your organization to the next level. What will Lindner Global be doing for its clients? That's a great question. This is where I spend all my time and I'm most excited, especially coming out of COVID. So for me, the giving back piece and that sort of legacy of service is somewhat new for me. Probably this is part of that transformation that I've gone through personally in reflection. I was running a business and trying to just pay the bills and support my family and support my team's families and all of that and serve with our clients. But really for me, my goal is to be able to give back in a myriad of ways. So we're creating new products to help our industry 
Coming out of COVID, we helped create with a group of founders, the DC Event Coalition, just as a way to support our industry over the time frame that COVID was happening. But it really made me realize how much I want to be able to give back. We're creating a pro bono program, which we've had for some time, but we're really making that a much bigger, to have bigger impact. We're looking at creating a foundation in the future where we can support organizations and young people who are trying to move through this career path and in a way that's really meaningful. I'd like to start creating our own event. We'll continue to service clients and expand that, but I'd like to create a universe where we're actually creating our own impactful events that we own. So there's a very bright and exciting future ahead for us, which will include a lot of giving back to the communities that we operate in. And I'm very excited about it. And to me, that's where I'm drawing the most juice. What a wonderful way to get additional meaning and purpose out of the experience we've gone through to both find better ways for convening people and giving back to the community. The human connection is really important to all of us and we need more of it than we've ever needed before. We just need it done with intention and purpose. So just saying we're going to bring people together, 200 people are going to be in a room, that's not good enough. So that's not human connection, just the fact that there are 200 people around. And it's so interesting too, because that draws exactly on the full arc of my life to this day. I was born in West Africa and I have this huge network of cultural connection and this web of how I've led my life coming to this sort of point now and this inflection point where I'm like, oh no, I want to draw on all of that in order to, exactly as you say, I'm a bridge for human connection. And that's how I look at my company now, which is not how I looked at it before. And that's where that transformation piece comes in. It's a reflection of who I am and how I've lived my life and now how I see myself going forward. What beautiful branding and messaging, a bridge for human connection. I love that. (laughs) There it is. You nailed it. (laughs) I can now fire my marketing company. (laughs) You are a great marketer yourself and you know that, Rebecca. So, Rebecca, if you were to give advice to your younger self and younger leaders based on your journey of ups and downs in establishing your company and growing it over the years, including through COVID, what advice would you give? It's so consistent for me now because as I reflect back, I was pushing so hard on trying to show up as this person I actually wasn't yet. And while I I think that's important, right? You need to have aspiration and you need to be the person you want to be. But to do that, you need to ask for help and you need to cultivate mentors and participate in cohorts. And I really was afraid and didn't feel good enough and was afraid of the no that I might get. And I look back now and realize as people make that request of me, I am so excited to help and give back. And I sit on boards and I am part of advisory. I'm part of one-on-one mentoring. And I realized so quickly that had I asked for that and participated in that, it's not that it would have accelerated my business because, but what it would have done, which would have impacted the business, is it would have accelerated me. And my emotional capacity, my spiritual capacity, my intellect, my business acumen in a way that then would have really, truly transformed. And in order to make something grow, you have to grow. 
And you do that by reaching out and asking for that help and investing in that and seeing that as important. And that is the advice I would give. What great advice, Rebecca. I interviewed Professor Vanessa Bonds, she's a professor of organizational behavior at Cornell, has written an outstanding book called You Have More Influence Than You Think. And one of the things she says in there is that we vastly underestimate people's willingness to help us, even for extreme requests. And she's done studies with people asking others for their cell phone, even when they don't know them on the street, or all kinds of extreme things, having them vandalize books. But part of the point that she makes is that people want to help. In many instances, we in our own minds come up with reasons why they would not say yes to us, and they won't. So that's a great piece of advice in that it's our challenge to overcome our fear and ask for that help from others. It's a great way for us to develop ourselves. In addition to that, are there any leadership resources or practices you typically find yourself recommending, Rebecca? I'm an avid reader. I read or listen to about average, about two and a half books a week. And I listen to it on like top speed, but that's my own sort of aid and kicking in probably. So that's one. There are groups that I belong to or I'm familiar with, EO, Vistage. I'm a part of a, an organization called Conscious Leadership Group. I meditate. I'm a daily meditator. And again, this is a person who used to be like, meditation, that's so weird. <laughs> and now I do a lot of breathing exercises. And I really support myself in many ways, externally and internally, in order to become the best version of myself as both leader, as parent, as human. So I think constantly recommitting always to your own personal growth is really the way to do it. There's no one way. There's a million ways to do it. And people need to find their path, but there's tons of resources out there. But cohorts are one. Reading is a great one. And it's so accessible to everyone. There's no barrier to that. And then just self-care. I, those are all outstanding perspectives, starting out with, as you mentioned, even coming out of COVID, the necessity for you as a leader of a team to take care of yourself without you taking care of yourself. You will not have the ability to take care of others, whether it's through meditation or whatever works for you. Yep. And then the opportunity to learn and grow whatever way works for you. It could be listening, it could be cohorts, it could be different opportunities. I really appreciate, Rebecca, you taking the time to share your leadership journey and your leadership insights, most especially because as you have gotten to become more of your authentic self, you have a tremendous ability to give back to others. And I am thrilled with your insights on how to make convenings work. You are doing that both professionally with the organization and looking to contribute more to the community through that, because I think that is something we all need desperately, powerful, effective convenings for human connection. Really appreciate your leadership, your perspectives, and you taking the time to share your life journey. Thank you so much, Rebecca Linder.
So, Mahan, it's such a privilege and an honor to talk to both you. And I hope there's some value here for the audience as well. And just know that it is my greatest gift to serve. And I feel so strongly about that. And I'm very open. If there's other ways I can do that, that people see, I look forward to hearing about how best to do that. But it is my greatest intention. You've been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review of the podcast on your favorite podcasting app and forward the conversation to a friend or colleague so you can help more people discover their purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.